Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Anybody who's standing should please feel free to come and sit down. Um, wow, thanks, thanks for being here, um, all of you. It's uh, this is the first time I think I've read with a tree in the room, <laughs> but hopefully not the last. Um, I am going to uh, tell you just a little bit about um, the book and then read a little bit from it. But um, before I do that, I just want to thank Skylight Books uh, which is just a force for good um, in independent bookselling. Um, and every time you walk in here, you just feel this wonderful energy emanating from not just the books themselves, but the people who work here um, because their mission is um, supporting something really essential to our culture. Uh, so thanks, Skylight. Um, thanks, Sarah, for hanging out with me and talking to me tonight. It's my pleasure. Sarah and I have actually been talking about this book for like the last Nine 10 years. years. Right? <laughs> um, and, um, and so, in fact, what, what we're going to do here tonight is kind of just continue a long-standing conversation, uh, which should be really yeah. fun. She hasn't answered any of my questions yet. <laughs> um, so, so the Flight Portfolio uh, is a novel about uh, a real person, Varian Fry, who was a New York journalist who went to Marseille in 1940 to try to save writers and artists who'd been blacklisted by the Gestapo. Um, and uh, I'm not going to tell you too much about his, his story now, because we're going to talk a lot about it, and what I'm going to read to you will illuminate some of it. Um, but uh, he ended up having marvelous success at his work. Um, and so this novel recounts some of the difficulties that he faced and um, tells us a little bit about the people he saved and, um, and what it was like to be in Marseille at that time. And it also creates a fictional sideline to his real story, which is another thing that Sarah and I will talk a little bit more about. What I'm going to read to you is the first chapter. It's a brief chapter. Um, It's from a section called Despise What Is Not Courage, which is a line from an E.E. E. Cummings poem. I wish I could lay claim to it myself, but it's not mine. <clears throat> and the chapter is called Gord, which is a place name from the south of France. There was, as it turned out, no train to the village where the Chagalls lived, one of many complications he'd failed to anticipate. He had to pay a boy with a motorbike to run him up from the station at Cavaillon, 10 miles at a brain-shaking pace along a narrow, rutted road. On either side rose ochre hills striated with grapevines and lavender and olive trees, overhead a blinding white-veined sky. The smell was of the boy's leather jacket and of charred potatoes, excellent of his clever homemade fuel. I kept that word, by the way. Yeah, You made that word up, didn't you? I, no, I just I misused. I, I just misused it. I will talk about you it. Misused it. I, like we. Yeah. I well, know. we have to talk a little this bit. This is going to be very informal. So Sarah, yeah, Sarah. Like I would often text her in the middle of the night while I was revising yeah. something and and say things like, "Well, what do you think about my use of that word?" And sometimes she would say, oh, "No, that's absurd. You can't put that word in there." And other times she would say, "Yeah, okay." Or she would say, "Actually, what you mean is conundrum." That's what you really did. I do mean. conundrum? Yeah, I think you did conundrum. Yeah. Anyways, um, so yeah, we'll, we can talk about excellent. Okay. I should start um, over. I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> um, the smell was of the boy's leather jacket and of charred potatoes, excellent of his clever homemade fuel. At the foot of the village, the boy parked in a shadow, accepted Varian's franks, and tore off into the distance before Varian could arrange a ride back. The streets of Gord, carved into a sun struck limestone hill above the Luberon Valley, offered little in the way of shade. He would have given anything to be back in Marseille with a glass of Aperol before him, watching sailors and girls, gangsters and spice vendors parading the Canabier. 
The Chagalls had only agreed to see him on the basis that he not bring up the prospect of their emigration. But what other subject was there? The Nazis had taken Paris months ago. They were burning books in the streets of Alsace. They could send any refugee over the border at will. At least the Chagalls had agreed. That was something. But as he reached the house, an ancient Catholic girls' school on the Rue de la Fontaine-Basse, he found himself fighting the urge to flee. His credentials, if anyone examined them, amounted to a fanatic's knowledge of European history, a desire to get out from behind his desk in New York, and a deep frustration with his isolationist nation. And yet, this was his job. He had volunteered for it. What was more, he believed he could do it. He raised his hand and knocked. An eye appeared in the brass circlet of the peephole, and a girl in a striped apron opened the door. She listened, strangling her index finger with one dark curl as he stated his name and mission. Then she ushered him down a corridor and out into a courtyard where a stone path led to a triangle of shade. There, at a bare wooden table, Chagall and his wife sat at lunch, the painter in his smock, his hair swept back from his forehead in silver waves, Bella in a close-fitting black dress, too hot for the day. Ah, Monsieur Fry, Chagall said, rising to meet him. Painter's eyes were large and uncommonly sharp, his expression one of bemusement. You've come, after all. I thought you might. You won't forget our agreement, will you? All I want is your company for an hour. You're lying, of course, but you lie charmingly. They sat together at the table. Bella on Varian's left, the painter to his right. He, Varian Fry, sitting down with the Chagalls, with Chagall, author of those color-saturated visions, those buoyant bridal couples and intelligent-eyed goats he'd seen in hushed rooms at the Museum of Modern Art. Bella filled a plate with brown hard-crusted miche, soft cheese, sardines crackling with salt. She handed it across the table, assessing Varian in silence. Had you been here a few days ago, we would have had tomatoes, Chagall said. A farmer brings them up to the market on Thursdays. I'm sorry we don't have more to offer. The bread's a little hard on the tooth, I'm afraid, but c'est la guerre. This is lavish, Varian said. You're too kind. Not at all. We like to share what we have. He gestured around him at the bare yellow stones, the rough benches, the shock of gold-green hillside visible through an archway in the wall. As you see, we're living a quiet and retired life in our little dasha. No one will bother us here at Gord. You have a studio, Varian said. You're still producing work. That's what makes you dangerous. Our daughter says the same, Bella said. She's been saying it for months. But you understand, Monsieur Fry, my husband's reputation will protect him. Vichy wouldn't dare touch us. With respect, Madame Chagall, I don't believe that for a moment. Vichy is subject to the Nazis' whims, and we all know what they're capable of. I've seen it myself. I was in Berlin in 35, sent by the magazine I worked for. My last night in town, there was a riot on the Kurfürstendamm. The things I saw, men pulled from their shops and beaten in the streets, an old man stabbed through the hand at a cafe table, boys dragging a woman by her hair. These things happened in Germany, Chagall said, his tone harder now. They won't happen here, not to us. Let me speak to my friend at the consulate, Varian said. Ask him to start a file for you, at least. If you do decide to leave, it might take months. Chagall shook his head. My apologies, Monsieur Fry. I'm sorry you had to come all this way in vain. But perhaps you'd like to have a look at the studio before you go. If you finish, that is. Varian couldn't speak. He could scarcely believe that a person of Chagall's intelligence a person of his experience could fail to see what he himself saw so clearly. Chagall rose and crossed the courtyard to a set of ten-foot-high blue doors, and Varian got to his feet. He nodded his thanks to Bella, then followed Chagall across the broken paving stones. Beyond the blue doors was a long, high-ceiling room with a wall of windows, the former refectory of the girls' school. Canvases lay about everywhere, and for long minutes Varian walked among them in silence. As well as he knew the painter's work, he had never seen it like this, in its pupil state, damp and mutable, smelling of turpentine, raw wood, wet clay. From the canvases rose ghost-like images, 
a grave-eyed Madonna hovering above a shadowed town, serenaded by cows and angels, crucified Christ wrapped in a prayer shawl, his head encircled by grieving sages, a woman kneeling beside a river, pressing a baby to her chest, clusters of red and white flowers rising like flames. It's no small matter to cross an ocean, Chagall said. More can be lost than canvas and paint. An artist must bear witness, Monsieur Fry. He cannot turn away even if he wishes to. An artist can't bear witness if he's dead. The painter removed his hat and set it on his knee. The emergency rescue committee mustn't concern itself further with our welfare, he said. Save your resources for those who truly need help. Max Ernst, for example, he's rumored to be in a concentration camp at Gur, or Jacques Lipschitz, my friend from Montparnasse. Who knows where he's fled to now? Or Lev Zilberman, who painted those massive murals in Berlin. Yes, I know Zilberman's work. Alfred Barr fought to get him on our list. You're not entirely on the wrong path, then. Help Ernst. Help Zilberman. Not me. And he turned away from Varian toward his canvases, toward the brushes and knives, the wooden boxes cluttered with crushed tubes of paint. I'll mention your name among our circles, he said. I know plenty who are eager to leave. Varian stumbled along the road toward Cavaillon, down the hill he'd seen through the courtyard arch. It would take him two hours to reach the station at this rate, another two on the train after that, and then he'd be back in Marseille, having made no progress at all. And what would he report to his colleagues in New York, to Paul Hagen, who directed the Emergency Rescue Committee, or to Frank Kingdon, its chair? That summer, when he and Paul and Ingrid Warburg and Alfred Barr and the others had compiled their list, 200 artists, writers, and intellectuals who'd been blacklisted by the Gestapo and had no way out of France. They hadn't imagined that their clients might resist being helped, nor that they'd consider themselves beyond Vichy's reach. There were so many things they hadn't considered. His life in France had become a process of discovering them, often to his embarrassment. It was a miracle he managed to get anyone out at all. There had been only 12 so far, a minuscule fraction of his list. What he ought to do, he thought, as he kicked stones along the rutted road, was to write his wife that night to say he was coming home. He'd confess, and what a relief it would be that his work wasn't going as planned. How had he imagined it would take a month, one month, to find and extract 200 endangered artists? He'd envisioned himself riding a rented bicycle through the countryside, rounding up refugees by the dozen as if they'd be waiting in the lemon orchards with traveling papers in hand. He'd imagined that the consulate would contort itself miraculously to help him. But then the chaos of this place, the innumerable bureaucratic barriers, the cretins in the U.S. visa office, the resistance of the artists themselves. What a mistake he'd made crawling out from behind his desk at the publishing house. How could he have presumed to take the lives of men like Chagall and Ernst into his hands when he had no idea how to manage them? No idea even of how to convince them they were in danger. Eileen wanted him home. She feared for his life. Her letter from last week had made that clear. Well, home he'd go. He'd write her at once. He'd write her as soon as he reached the Splendide. I'll stop there. That was exquisite. I'm just going to take and this out of here. Okay. It's weird to like, feels weird. To Reading that for the first time, it, it reads like you're setting up the plot, but you're doing something else, which is you're setting up the essential moral quandary that Varian has to grapple with on every page of this book, which is, is his project morally defensible? Is it morally defensible to go and um, cherry pick people to save while you know leaving lots of other people? And this is something that you don't forget until the last page of this book because all of the characters somehow have their own nuanced way of handling that problem. Mm -hmm. Many of them have a lot of certainty. Varian has a lot of certainty. He's pretty sure that what he's doing is right. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, and he's challenged 
throughout the book by minor characters. One of my favorite parts of the book was um, his run-in with somebody who worked for the ship on which he was going to hide um, a couple of people and he had to choose between two artists and he chose one and it turned out that um, it wasn't the one that he thinks that he should have put on the ship and then this character says well what's the problem are you are you worried that you've just put an ordinary person that you just saved an ordinary person and it's and you know varying kind of brushes it off but it's just indelible um, and I guess my, my question um, my question is that, you know, working on this book for as long as you did, doing all the research that you did, did you find your attitude or understanding or relationship to this problem changing? And, yeah. Well, you know, as a writer, <laughs> I had a bias. Like, oh, so he's going to save the writers and artists. Good job, Marion Fry. Um, no, I mean... To address your question, seriously, I, I do feel like one of the things that compelled me when I read Varian Fry's memoir, which I did before I you know, started writing the book, um, was that his thinking on the subject changed. Um, it felt to me like that was one of the reasons I wanted to address him in, in the novel form, uh, because his vision Became, complement, became complicated by his experience. It changed um, over the course of his 13 months in Marseille. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that idea as a writer. You know, how does a person's sense of mission have to evolve um, when, um, when the actual on the ground experience interrupts that initial idea? Um, and I think that I was interested in this as well because um, in the last book I wrote, uh, The Invisible Bridge, which took place um, also during the Second World War and involved uh, Hungarian forced labor camps, one idea that I kept coming back to was the randomness of it all, just how people's lives were saved thanks to chance occurrences and how there was no privileging of virtue or of talent or of beauty or strength or anything else. It was really, um, people were really at the mercy of, of um, factors entirely beyond their control. Um, and it struck me that in a situation like this, where an organization, the Emergency Rescue Committee, um, approached the situation as if they did have control, you know, as if they really could, um, make a clear moral decision about whom to save. Um, what was revealed to them by the actual situation on the ground was that they couldn't exercise that control because, um, because in fact, um, it was impossible to defend their position. Yeah, yeah so that, that was, I think it was the, the moral complexity of that situation that mm -hmm. was one of the you know, one of the chief drivers of my desire to write this yeah. book. I want to ask you about research, um, if you don't mind. I'd, I'd like to quote you from a recent <laughs> interview. Um, you know, I... Why is that so funny, Holly? Yeah. <laughs> no. well, <laughs> uh, our is whole friendship is totally meta. Okay. It's just, that's where we live. <laughs> All right, silence. Um, <clears throat> I imagine that writing a novel that requires a lot of research draws the, the, the one annoying question that a, um, a serial writer of autobiographical books mm -hmm. also draws, which is, well, like, if it's real, then you didn't really craft anything, you didn't really make anything up. And you had a wonderful answer to that. Um, and you basically just trounce this false assumption so beautifully. Um, so Julie answers this. Well, I had to understand the historical record fully before I could craft a narrative in the apertures between the facts. I realized that if I tried to include everything I'd learned, there was no way I was ever going to finish the book. At that point, what I needed was a kind of inner quiet, an openness from which my own narrative could emerge. And I wonder if you can just 
talk about like how that feels to do? Like at what point did you recognize you had completely metabolized the history and were able to not just, you know, make a rote document? Um, well, I think in a sense from the very beginning, I, I knew that there had to be a fictional sideline to this story because part of what I wanted to explore was um, the way um, personal factors would complicate the professional decisions that Barry and Fry had to make in this situation. And we don't have perfect knowledge of what his personal situation was in Marseille for a variety of reasons. Um, and so, so the crafting of fiction in this book had so much to do with what couldn't have been known. Um, so there was a lot of opportunity for that. Um, but I think that, you know, because I was writing about this real person, I also felt this really heavy weight of responsibility toward what was known. Um, and I felt like I had to capture uh, his actual experience, at least the facts of his actual experience, um, in order for the, for the novel to be honest in a way. Um, one question that, um, that a number of people have asked me in recent days as I've been talking about the book, I was going to say in recent weeks, but in fact the book was published a week ago, <laughs> just seems like that, um, is uh, did, I, did I have to ask permission of Varian Fry's family in order to be able to write this book and how did I feel a sense of permission to write about this real person whose heirs still live in the world. And you know, the, the answer to that question all along was that I had to be absolutely faithful to what was known about him and what was known about his experience. That the way to do honor to him was to um, record in this work of fiction um, the, the, the actual facts. Um, but the privilege of the novelist is to invent um, in the midst of all of that. Um, and I, I exercised that privilege lavishly in this book um, because there were other elements of his experience that I wanted to explore. Yeah. There's been some debate about your handling of the historical record, um, some documentation of which is coming out in the um, New York Times Book Review this weekend. Um, I wonder if you could just kind of gloss that recent uh, series of events for us. Sure, um, yeah, so, so this novel um, explores, in addition to the rescue work Varian Fry was doing, um, a relationship with somebody who he knew from Harvard, who reappears in Marseille, um, reappears in his life after 12 year absence. And this is somebody who uh, he had a close and passionate relationship with while he was a college student. Um, and uh, in the course of their renewed friendship, um, they become very close again and they realize that they are necessary to each other's lives. Um, this came out of research that I did so many years ago um, in the course of which I learned that Varian Fry had had relationships with men while he was at Harvard and subsequent to that while he was in Marseille. Um, there's a marvelous um, biography of Lincoln Kirstein by Martin Duberman in which he writes about Varian's relationship with Lincoln during uh, the time that they were working on the literary magazine they started, The Hound and Horn, which is kind of a renegade magazine at Harvard. They were publishing, you know, T.S. Eliot and Juna Barnes and all sorts of fabulous um, writers who were, you know, at that time uh, out of the mainstream. Um, and uh, they had a kind of fiery relationship um, that crashed and burned at a certain point. Um, and, uh, and Duberman writes about it quite eloquently in his biography. And then in a recent memoir by uh, Stéphane Hassel, the French diplomat whose writings gave rise to the Occupy movement, um, he chronicles the time that he spent in Marseille during the time Varian Fry was there they had a very close relationship. Um, they were both married at the time. Hassel's wife was in France. Varian's wife was back in New York. But Varian and Stéphane would escape on the weekends to the small towns in the south of France and kind of explore the countryside and go swimming and go hiking. And uh, they had a romantic relationship during that time. Um, and so I felt 
that in order to capture this historical figure accurately, I needed to be accurate to that element of his character as well. Um, and so I, so I wrote about this fictional relationship because I felt that probably, um, you know, he did have other relationships with men that wouldn't have been recorded. Um, and that as a fiction writer, I had um, a kind of, um, I had a kind of ability to explore what the historical record couldn't have captured. So um, in recent weeks, um, some reviewers have raised, I wouldn't say they raised the question, they didn't raise the question. They, yeah. What they said quite clearly was, um, apart from slight hunches and hints, there is no historical evidence of Varian Fry's having been gay. Um, and I was astonished to read that in a couple of different reviews because the the evidence is actually quite accessible. I mean, you can download an ebook um, in two minutes and there it is on the page. Um, but the interesting thing that happened was that after one review was published, uh, Varian Fry's son wrote to me and said, I am so outraged that there's a denial of my father's homosexuality. He said, you know, this is something that I figured out 30 years ago. And, um, and I don't see how um, this should be objectionable in this day and age. I mean, the suggestion was that by, by uh, inventing this element of Varian Fry's character, I was somehow, um, I was somehow changing the historical record about the Holocaust in a way that was akin to what Holocaust deniers do. Um, and Varian Fry's son was absolutely was was so angered by that suggestion that he felt that he needed to correct the record in print, and so he wrote a letter to the Times, um, you know, telling the world everything that I've just told you. Um, and what's so fascinating about this is that this is really the first time that uh, somebody who is that close to Varian Fry has has said such a thing in no uncertain terms. And so in a strange way, in the weirdest way, a way that I couldn't have imagined possible, a fictional record of this person's life has actually ended up correcting the historical record in a way that, just that can never be ch changed now yeah. um, or denied. Yeah. Um, and one of the points I think that Varian Fry's son made that was so um, important to acknowledge is that in fact, you know, homosexuals are persecuted during the Holocaust. And to deny that a historical figure who lived at that time was gay is also to uh, commit an injustice to that part of the history. Absolutely. So, so it's, it's been fascinating to watch all this unfold. It was not, the, it was not a reaction that I expected at this, this particular historical moment. You've outlined all of that with such grace and equanimity, but from this side of the table, I'm just so happy that you won because you were right. <laughs> you were right. And there was, you know, a fairly um, blatant attempt to contradict this, you know, these 10 years of work, this great book that you've written, and um, that contradiction is just scuttled in a word. Um, and yeah, and it's great to correct the historical record too, but um, I want to leave plenty of time for questions, um, but I just want to get credit for uh, one thing, which is that in preparing for this event, I read a uh, Henry James novel, and it was really long. Um, I read The Portrait of a Lady because I felt that it, it might be a good companion piece to thinking and talking about a long novel. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I really picked the right novel. I, I hadn't read it before, um, uh, but it, you know, it, it really is uh, a very intimate companion piece to this book that you've written. And I just want to ask one more question before we can open it up to the floor. Okay. And that question is about um, something that I have really never been able to explore in my own work, and that's the ability to exercise restraint. Um, in the sense of um, enjoying creating hundreds of pages in which suspense is maintained. How do you 
do that. It's like it's like a very sexy thing to be able to do. Thanks, man. Um, yeah. Well, you know, Henry James is good at it too. But there's, um, yeah, yeah. There's some something there that is very mysterious and beautiful. Um. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that I have always um, enjoyed as a reader is a total immersion in a character's experience. I mean, it's that thing that fiction can do that no other form of art can do, right? It just sort of drops you into the mind and the life of somebody who is not you and allows you to see the world from behind their eyes. Um, and kind of, I felt like one of the things that I wanted to capture in this book, as in the last book actually, was the real passage of time. You know, I mean, it shouldn't take you 13 months to read the book, um, but um, but I did feel like there were so many situations. There was so much inherent suspense in that situation. the The situation in France there at the time was that um, these endangered artists and writers had fled to France from the occupied countries, and then after the French occupation, they'd fled to the south of France. And there they sat, trying to figure out ways to get out. In order to get out, you had to have all the right papers. So the French exit visa, the Spanish entry visa, the Portuguese entry visa, and the United States entry visa. And you also had to have a valid passport or an affidavit in lieu of passport, which was what many stateless people had. Um, and they were all dated, all of those visas and documents, and they all had to be valid at the same time, which was incredibly hard, because you never knew when, of them, when, when one of them was going to come through. Um, and it was further, um, it was made further difficult by the fact that the United States was not amenable to having scores and scores of degenerate artists and writers entering our, our shores. Um, and so um, there was only one guy in the US visa office um, in Marseille who was uh, sympathetic to Varian Fry's mission, um, this um, consular officer named Harry Bingham. And so it was this one person who, at the risk of his professional life, was arguing for um, and granting these visas to Varian Fry's clients and to a lot of other people who were trying to get out of Marseille at the time. And so these writers and artists were stuck. They were just sitting there waiting, like, you know, like you've seen in the movie Casablanca. Um, time was passing. Nobody knew when they were going to get out. There were Nazis in town. Everybody felt threatened. And the threat was very real. People could be hauled off to concentration camps or deported to Germany at any moment. Um, and, um, and so, um, so in these lives at the time, there was this terrible sense of, of peril that was connected to the passage of time and the worsening of the political situation. So the suspense in the book, or the sense of, um, uh, you know, the, the ongoing questions as to whether or not um, a particular person was going to survive were the questions that were on the line at the time. That was what the, the people who were involved were feeling at the time. So I think in order to capture that experience mimetically, I felt like I needed to recreate that on the page in some way. Yeah, but you're, you just did such a good job. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Well, I, I mean, there were a lot of interesting things that were happening there at that time. There were a lot of, there were a lot of good distractions um, that allowed for the refugees to pass the time interestingly and that also allowed for um, for narrative shape to emerge um, out of what might have otherwise felt like a you know just a protracted period of waiting yeah, that's a good point. Um, does anybody feel moved to ask a question of the author yeah in the back Yeah, so, you know, Varian and Grant, who um, is the old friend who becomes his lover, um, they, you know, they face this sense of impossibility. Um, 
the first hurdle is that they have a history to overcome. Um, they, they both hurt each other in a way that seems almost impossible to heal. Um, and then, of course, there's the fact that they're both men and that it's 1940. And so even if they find a way to reconcile, the world is not going to be amenable to a future that they might envision together. Um, and um, yeah, I think you're right, Javi, that there was this sense of embattlement um, that exists in their relationship that was reflected in the world around them. But there was another element of it that I think um, was ironic in a way, which is that um, that Varian's clients were struggling to get out of Europe and he was struggling. He was devoting every ounce of energy of, in his day and all of his associates in his endeavor were doing the same to actually get them their papers and to find them ways out. Because once you had your papers, you still had to figure out how you're going to get over the border or find a ship that could take you to safety. Um, and what happened again and again to the tune of more than 2,000 clients was that he found ways for them to get out. He got papers, real and fake, for them. He found places for them on ships they stowed away or there were, ship, there were legitimate commercial ships that he got them places on. Um, he had people who could conduct them over the Pyrenees on foot. And again and again, they got out. And um, at the same time, he knew, and I believe this to be, have been true of his actual experience, not just of the relationship that I, the fictional relationship that I explore in the book. He knew that his own desire for refuge could never be fulfilled in his lifetime, or that was what he felt, that, um, that his refugees could actually repatriate um, and be saved, but that he himself couldn't find any accepting shore. Um, and, and I think that this is one of the, the reasons that when you read his biography, when you learn what happened to him after he came home from Marseille, um, his, his life kind of fell apart. Um, not just because of the horrific struggle to convince people in the States of, of how dire things were over there, um, but also because I think that while he was in Marseille, he actually tasted a possibility for the kind of relationship, the kind of way of being in relation that he couldn't have as a daily, um, a daily occurrence in his life. And to then have to come back and, you know, be reminded of, of, of his continuing sense of otherness, I think was just unbearable. <laughs> Well, I think by the time a lot of Varian Fry's clients were escaping, the political situation was so clear. Um, France was already occupied. Um, Germany showed no sign of restraint um, in its, its, its military push. Um, and so despite the fact that some of the clients were resistant, I think um, most of those who were applying for aid, most of those who arrived at Varian Fry's door and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them showing up every day at the offices of the Emergency Rescue Committee in Marseille. I mean, the writing on the wall was, was very clear at the time. Um, now the part of it that is super incredible and remarkable to me was that Fry, this guy who was an editor and a writer, took it upon himself to go to Marseille. So what is it that makes a person do that? What is it that gives somebody the chutzpah to volunteer for that job, having never done any work like that before? To invent that job in the first place, right? Yeah. Didn't he just sort of make it up? 
Yes. Well, there were others who were doing similar work. You know, there were other rescuers in Europe at that time who were serving other populations. Um, but uh, he himself had never done anything like this. Um, and so, but he had always been uh, an iconoclast. He had always been somebody who wasn't content to accept the system as it was. When he was a kid, he went to boarding school, and there were these these horrible hazing rituals at boarding school where, you know, kids would be woken up in the night and made to run 20 laps around the track and then, you know, they would be starved for days or they would be stuffed with, you know, they would, they would be made to eat, you know, everything on a table and, and he protested that. He was, you know, he ended up dropping out of a number of boarding schools because he didn't feel it was right for uh, the underclassmen to be hazed. Um, and then when he was at Harvard, he was constantly protesting practices there that he felt were unjust. Um, and, um, and so he'd always been, he'd always kind of had a mind for social justice. But it's one thing to write about it, and it's another thing to actually get out from behind your desk and do it. Um, and one of the things that I, that I came to feel over the course of the, you know, 10 plus years of writing this book was that his sense of otherness, his sense of, of belonging to a persecuted group must have contributed in some way to a sense of empathy that he felt for these people who were persecuted in Europe. Not that there was a strict one-to-one -one correlation between those things, but you know, you gotta have a pretty strong sense of empathy. You gotta have a pretty internalized understanding for those people's experience to actually get yourself up and over there and into the way of danger, you know? Thank you. Yeah. About um, 10 days ago, at a writer's block event, I heard oh. Michael Dobbs, the historian, write about a nonfiction book that he just published about Jews of a small town in Germany, Kippenheim. Uh -huh. He ended up in Marseille. Marseille. Oh, wow. Uh, tried, he also spent 10 years on that book. Uh, Takes 10 years to write that book. <laughs> Right. Uh, but uh, some of them were safe and some of them weren't. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and he also, as a historian, he talks about how he refused to go beyond what he could verify in the historical record. So mm -hmm. it's just really interesting. You're two parallel, but talking about the same experiences in the same place at the same time. Yeah. Uh, with a, both a nonfiction and, and a fiction. Yes. No, I, I, I have to get his book. It sounds great. I think I would love it. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated to read it. I've been hearing a lot about it. Um, uh, you know, the question you ask is one that Sarah and I have actually talked a lot about. You know, what do you render as fiction and what do you render as nonfiction? You know, I mean, how do you, how have you approached that question in your work? You know, like, how do you know when you have a story that you want to tell whether fiction, I mean, Sarah's somebody who's written extensively in every genre. She's written poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. Um, Wait, and well, I haven't really written fiction, though. Th that McSweeney's book. No, I call them stories. Stories that, of fiction. That, not these. <laughs> okay, well. Yeah. I mean, Th this might be a conversation for another time, but. <laughs> no, but I, I mean. But, well, no, the, the th I think the takeaway, though, is that, um, you know, we. Julie and I talk about our work and the you know things we can't figure out in our work constantly, and um, I often suggest you know you you should write an essay about such and such you know it would be marvelous it would be so good and and you're constantly saying like no it's too hard I can't and then and then you're constantly telling me like just just write a novel already and I'm like I don't know how to write a novel like, <laughs> it, it's just um, no I I mean but all kidding aside there's there's like a particular sensibility that. Um, I think makes people capable of making a certain kind of work. Yeah. You know, Chagall isn't isn't going to, you know, take up jewelry making in this book because I mean, he, you know what his work is like. It's like it's like it's it's a certain way. Um, I still think you should write more essays though. And you should write more novels. I'm working on it. <laughs> Me too. Ah. Um yeah, I uh, yes. The question of 
what to render in, um, as nonfiction and what to render as fiction. I mean, I just think that, that what it comes down to for me as a writer is that I, I like the superpower that fiction gives you, which is to extrapolate from external circumstances into the workings of the human mind, the inner workings of the human mind. I like that a fiction writer is mandated to go into that space um, and to try to envision what couldn't have been recorded. Um, yeah, I, I, I enjoy the freedom of that. And yet, you know, in writing about a real person, I took on some constraints. I willingly adopted these constraints. Um, but there's a pleasure in that. There's a pleasure in, um, in the restrictions of form. I mean, you know that as a poet, too, you know? In nonfiction, though, um, I mean, it's interesting to see, to, to hear you say, and, you know, w with such um, obvious truth behind it, like, you, you enjoy the freedom of, of being able to make so many choices. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And that, that freedom is so unpalatable to me. It's, um, you know, I mean, I, it, that's, not a, that's not an attempt to be, you know, cute or funny, but it, it's... Um, it's unpalatable to me. It just it just seems like uh, dimensionless chaos, and I really enjoy the constraint of only writing down what happened. And uh, it's uh, and and there it is, you know. And and um, and so we get this from you, <laughs> and uh, you know, and uh, and I write short books about things that happened. Um, it's uh, yeah, they're impossible to compare. Well, just we need it all. We need, we it, need all. it all. But we're doing the same thing. We're processing human experience yeah. through the medium of language. Yeah, that's true. Um, any, uh, any, other any other questions? questions? Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, yes, it, uh, I felt like when I was researching the Invisible Bridge, I was learning about the larger picture of Europe at that time. I, I kind of had to uh, teach myself and also study. I mean, I studied when I was, when I was teaching at Michigan. I actually took a, um, a survey class in you know, the, the 20th century. Um, in the history department, because I actually, when I was an undergraduate, I because I had taken AP history as a high school student, I placed out of history. I didn't, I wasn't required to take a history class at Cornell <laughs> in order to graduate, <laughs> um, and I didn't. I didn't. I I was interested in literature and in film um, and in science um, and in art, and that was. That was what I studied, and so it wasn't until I was an adult, a real adult, not a college adult, um, that I that I actually s embarked on a study of that history. Um, that history was great preparation for the writing of this book. I did not have as much catching up to do when I was working on this novel, um, but then there was a very specific personal history that I felt like I needed to become fluent in in order to write the novel. So I had access to a couple of really great troves of um, documents um, and information for this research. One is this 27-box archive at Columbia um, held in the Manuscripts and Rare Books Library um, that consists of Varian Fry's papers from Marseille and from the years that followed. So every letter he wrote to anyone here back in the States, um, the letters he wrote to the State Department, the letters he wrote to his wife, to his parents, to his friends, letters between Varian and the artists who he was trying to save, um, letters between Varian and the artists who had escaped to the States and what their lives were like in the States. Um, and, um, you know, hundreds of documents capturing the struggle that he, uh, that he faced there um, and the decisions that he made and the conditions that he was working under. Um, I used to teach this class on Monday evenings or Monday afternoons at Columbia and the archive was open late that night so I'd finished teaching and then around 4.30 in the afternoon I'd go over to the archive and spend three or four hours there just going endlessly through these papers. Um, another thing that was fabulous was uh, during the time that I was at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard, uh, 
I had access to Varian Fry's student file there. Um, it had just been unsealed before I arrived there. Um, it was unsealed something like 80 years after his graduation. So the right interval had to elapse before that could occur. Um, and so I read his college application essays. Um, I had access to a record of every place he lived at Harvard. Um, I had a research assistant. I had two fabulous undergraduate research assistants, um, one of whom helped me to um, get in touch with the girls who lived in his old dorm room. So I actually went to his dorm. You know, it's weird to talk about this because as I do, I, 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 what, what I realize is that, uh, that in doing that research and reading his letters, immersing myself in his papers and uh, living where he lived, going to Marseille and walking around the streets where he walked and visiting the office where he did his work. In, in a way, I think as novelists, when we do this kind of research, we are trying to live our subject's life. You know, we're trying to do the opposite of what we say we're trying to do, write about somebody other than ourselves. We're almost trying to like, we're almost trying to live into that person's life in a way, even though that project is impossible. Um, but there is so very much that exists still that can help a researcher to sort of recreate a, a person's life um, from this period. Um, and that was an enormous difficulty, uh, but it was also what made the writing of the book possible. It's also what made it take so very long. That, that and the fact that I had two children <laughs> during the <laughs> course of the writing of it. But, um, but um, yes, it, it was, it was different from the process that I undertook to write The Invisible Bridge because there I could interview family members and, and others who were around uh, who I had this intimate access to. And in the case of Varian Fry, who was no longer around, um, you know, I had to look farther afield in a way. Um, there's one associate of his who is still alive. His name is Eustace Rosenberg. He's a professor emeritus at Bard. Um, and he's 97 years old, and I've had the most marvelous conversations with him about what went on in Marseille. Um, but so many of those stories are, you know, no longer accessible to us. Yeah. I love this book. I, I almost lost the friend because she came to visit me and I couldn't take the book. <laughs> I'm both sorry and delighted to hear that. Um, the thing, it's so inspiring, not only Varian, but the group of people who collect around him, who yeah. save so many lives. But then at the end, you're also heartbroken that he was so thwarted by the State Department yeah. and all the forces back in the United States. And you're, you're, you, I was a little bereft at the end that, once again, you're reminded how little the United yeah. Especially at the start of the war. Right. Yeah, well, you know, um, when I started writing this book, um, Obama was just becoming president, and our border policies were different from what they are now. Um, it's never been entirely easy to emigrate to this country, but there have been times when it is significantly easier than it is now. Um, and over the course of writing this book, as I encountered that frustration in my own research, just thinking, oh my God, how could the State Department have put up so many barriers when it was so clear that these people were imperiled? Um, I started to see this happening in our own foreign policy, in our own you know, government policy toward uh, immigration. And um, I did not think as I was writing this book, that I was writing, that I was writing a story that was going to end up being as topical as it is. Um, but in fact, one of the things that I hope will be true is that uh, the book will really um, illuminate the danger of exclusionary immigration policy um, and highlight, you know, just what it is that can be lost when when policies like that are in place. I mean, I, I sit here as the, as the beneficiary of a policy of blanket asylum that existed um, after the Hungarian Revolution. 
Um, and there's my cousin, Elliot Tibor, who, uh, who's also here because of that. Um, my mom and his dad um, both escaped um, after the Hungarian Revolution by crossing the border um, you know, in the company of somebody whose job it was to escort refugees in the middle of the night over these snow-covered fields. Um, and, um, and every refugee who made it out was welcome in the States. And certainly, there's no way, there's no way that he and I would exist right now if it weren't for that policy, because our families were directly imperiled in Hungary at that time. So it matters. And what's truly amazing is that this one guy was so outraged by that. This one guy encountering that resistance in Marseille was so enraged by what he found that he, he continued to put his life at risk and stayed for as long as he possibly could until he was really forcibly thrown out of the country. Um, but it really gives you pause when you think about it, when you're sitting on your couch and you think, well, you know, like, what can I do? I mean, in this case, this one person managed to save more than 2,000 people. So, you know, we read about him and feel called to arms, you know, or that's what I hope. What do you think, one more question? Are we at the one more question stage? Are you sure? It's Julie Oringer. Okay. Okay. Yeah, well, there are two great questions in, that, um, in that, that larger set of questions that I want to try to address separately. The first about how I found the inner quiet, I think part of that, in fact, was actually finding outer quiet. Um, I work at the Brooklyn Writers' Space. It's about 10 minutes from my house. It's this marvelous co-working space for poets, nonfiction writers, screenwriters, playwrights, and anyone who has a project uh, that is, <laughs> that can fit into any category or no category of creative writing. Um, there's a kitchen, there's kind of a lounge area where people can hang out and have lunch and talk to each other, and then there's a big quiet room where there are just carols where writers can come and hole up and sit for the day. Now, I have a tiny locker there. It's about the size of a lunchbox. I can keep like two, two or three books there. Um, and there was a point at which I realized I could not haul my the entire trove of my research to the Brooklyn Writer Space every day. And that was a gift because in fact I it would have been it would have been the worst possible thing. The book would never have been finished if I felt like I had to sort of carry the whole weight of that. So eventually I just ended up carrying Varian Fry's memoir. That was it. One book. And also and kept in my little lunchbox size locker um, a marvelous biography uh, by Andy Marino called A Quiet American about his experiences there. Um, and with those two books as my, as kind of signposts, um, after I had done all the years of research that I had done, um, I felt like I could stay faithful to the actual events of the experience, but not become so embroiled in trying to chart every single moment. Um, I did do a lot of mapping out, you know, when I was maybe about halfway through the book, I wrote a document in which I listed the actual events that had to take place over the course of the rest of the novel. Um, it was totally daunting to do because I realized that there were another, you know, few hundred pages that had to be written in order for that to unfold without, um, without a sense of disproportion or rush. Um, but, but those, um, those two books were a marvelous guide to everything that I really wanted to be faithful to. You know, all of the helpers who uh, Varian recruited to his organization, people like Miriam Davenport, who had this marvelous background in art history and was helping him identify the artists who needed to be saved, or Mary Jane Gold, who was an American heiress who had thousands and thousands of dollars to donate to the organization, but who also had this marvelous energy and who sat interviewing 
candidates for aid for hours and hours on end and maintain a kind of lightness of demeanor that kept everybody from just going over a cliff. Um, and um, and Varian's secretary, who, was, who had this um, dogged persistence, um, and Albert Hirschman, who later became a world-famous economist, um, who was undaunted by failure and who also relished the black market part of the experience and who made all kinds of wonderful connections. Those people were a finite group of lives that I felt had to be a part of this book. Fortunately, it was a finite group. There was a limit to the number of people who I felt could be in the book. And there are many others whose lives I wish I could have illuminated who are connected with this organization in one way or another. But the great thing about it is that this is not the only document that exists about that time and place. There are a number of biographies um, in the acknowledgments at the end of this book. There's basically a bibliography of a marvelous um, wealth of, of historical documentation of this time. And, and I encourage everybody to check it out because it's truly amazing. Thank you guys. Thanks, Sarah. This is great. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.